Welcome to the Breaking Into Finance podcast. My name is Craig Thompson, and this is the open source field guide to help you understand everything you need to know about breaking into finance. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Today, I am thrilled to share another mock interview episode. This is an episode that I recorded a couple weeks ago with a student who's actually based in Austria. Before we jump into it, I just wanted to share a couple of reflections on some of the mock interviews that I've done so far. And first, I actually don't post all of these, and there are a couple that I recorded that for one reason or another, the candidate just didn't show well. And here, I'm all about learning, I'm all about education, so I'm really glad that I was able to do some of those mock interviews. I think those students definitely learned a lot, but it's not really instructive or helpful to the audience to kind of put anybody on blast if, if it's not you know quality listens. So if you're listening to this and you're in the middle of your technicals prep or interview prep, maybe you have something coming up, I'd really encourage you to reach out to me at craig at breakingintofinancepodcast.com. No matter whether you're listening to this, you know, the day I post it or a couple months afterwards, I'd be happy to hop on, do a recorded mock interview with you. And I hope you treat it as kind of an only upside thing for you where you're going to get some great feedback. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to get some good practice. And it's only going to go on the show if you're showing well. This isn't this isn't a gotcha show. This is an educational show. This is a learning show. And we're all in this together. So I really encourage you to reach out if you're listening and you're kind of on the fence. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, Joel. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for finding the time to speak with me today. Of of course, yeah. We we are speaking from several time zones away. It's a Sunday as well, which you know we're not going to post this on a Sunday. But I um I want to recognize and appreciate you taking the time. Um, and it's a Sunday late afternoon, early evening, um, where you are, and it's Sunday morning where I am. I guess to start, could you could you walk me through your resume? Yeah, for sure. Uh, as, we, as some of you might know, I'm from Austria. Uh, and um, I just I studied business, business administration. Um, but before that, I kind of, after high school, I had an interesting journey. I didn't know what to do after high school. And I was I had the hobby of taking pictures. And I decided I wanted to be a fashion photographer. And then I, was, I did an evening course for one year where I learned um, in and out of photography. And I also moved to London after a year where I was working in one of the biggest photo studios and was able to meet some very interesting uh, clients. Let's say I was working for Tour Lipa, for example, and other big brands like Red Bull and, and Vogue. Fascinating time. But then uh, COVID came and we had to temporarily shut down. Uh, and I had some time to reflect on my uh my mission for life and what, what do I want to do with my career. And I did some reflection and also watched some online uh, lectures on finance. And I found it really interesting. And that's then I decided to do the study business. And and this has proven for me to be that you have been the right choice. Uh, because like learning all this material about finance, business, marketing, whatever, it was so much fun that I actually uh, completed my studies ahead of time. So faster than most people do it. So I completed it in, in two and a half years and also had pretty good grades just because it was fun for me to learn this stuff. And I just also spent an, an exchange semester in Los Angeles at USC, which was also a super fascinating uh, experience. And in terms of internships, I, I, I did an internship at a small um, tax and uh, auditing attorney, which was great. 
to do, do like a first, first insight into like how how, the, how does their work work. And then I moved on to a management consulting internship at Kani, which was like a crazy experience because it's probably most, as is commonly known, it's like such a fast-paced environment. Within eight weeks, I was I was staffed on four different projects where I got like a high-level understanding of how does this work. I did a benchmarking project. I worked on a calf out deal and also worked on a commercial diligence. Which so let's let's talk yeah. about what is is there one of those that you spent more of your time on on the others or basically um, I want to talk about one of those projects and I'll let you yeah. pick which one we talk about. I think the most interesting one might be the commercial intelligence project. Okay. Um, okay. So tell tell me about that. Tell me about the background. Who was the client? Um, what was the project? Like not like the name of the client, but just like yeah. tell me a little bit of background about the client and kind of like what the nature of the project was. Yeah, there was a, a big European player who wanted to acquire which, which a, industry? Uh, in a gardening industry. Okay. Yeah. And they wanted to acquire a smaller company in the US, which has been owned by a private equity fund, but the fund wanted to sell it. And this big German conglomerate in the gardening space was thinking about acquiring it. And we were tasked to find out does it make sense? What a the quality of the products, how its competitors and are the customers happy with buying from this uh, target in the US? Um, so tell me, tell me about like how did that process go? What did you find? Um, were you positively inclined, negatively inclined? Um, so, so my task were involved were looking at the product, trying mm -hmm. to see okay who else is offering a similar service in the US, and comparing the features, comparing the prices, just going to different websites, and. Yep. And my uh, conclusion was that actually they have a good good offering. Customers are posting good reviews online, having amazing features, and also the creator community on YouTube, for example, is putting good reviews. So I was thinking, okay, this this is a good offering. Okay. Um, and do you know did that deal actually close? Did it? Did it? Yeah, happen? it actually closed afterwards. Yeah. Um, okay, and it, uh, and so um, do you remember like? The final, like, were, was your team involved in like the actual like negotiations of valuation or anything like that, or is it really just like the commercial due diligence work stream? No, we were also working on a TCF model. Okay. For them, with different scenarios, and one of my colleagues uh, actually built an interesting regression analysis looking at the weather forecast and also um, different scenarios there. Uh, but we were not involved in the final closing of the deal. Yep. We just like gave this analysis, and like nine months later, I checked the press releases and found out. Okay, actually, they went through with it. Okay. Did Did you build the DCF, or was it like you contributed to it, and like the team kind of collectively built it? Um, I just completed. I edited some numbers, okay. changed some colors, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. All right. Sounds Sounds good. Um, well, that that definitely sounds like like wonderful experience, and yeah, very. Um, interesting and diverse set of opportunities on your resume. I definitely see it's very it's very business slanted recently, but um, you know the the you know music competition and and photography. It it seems like you you have many interests. So I guess that <laughs> yeah. um, you know we we you know I'm representing a a large bank that has all sorts of different industry groups. Do you have a particular preference um, among sectors or anything like that? Um, at the moment, I want to learn like a general experience, have okay. a general experience, but 
one one space that interests me a little bit now is uh, the tech space. So okay. I might focus in that area a bit more. Um, great. Um, all right. So I have my my big list of of uh, super day technical questions here, and picking a random one on the list. Um, okay. So I I want you to imagine that you're advising a company. Um, and they have raised a hundred million dollars of new debt at a 10% interest rate. And they do that on January 1st. I'd love for you to walk me through how this transaction impacts their financial statements on December 31st of that same year. Yeah, for sure. So we are advising a company uh, who have just raised um, one one million in debt and a hundred million, hundred million in debt, yep. and they have to pay ten percent in interest. Yep, ongoing. Um, yeah. Okay, let me first. So first, um, I'm going to start with the income statement. Um, since since we we get we're going to get the money on the thirty first of December, it's not going to be the interest. No, we get the money. We raise the money. On January 1st, we get the money okay. on January 1st. The transaction all occurs yeah. in that day. And now we fast forward. It's December 31st. It's the end of the year. I want to know what our books, like how our books have changed basically as a result of raising that debt. Okay, makes sense. Um, so on, our income statement is going to be affected by the interest expense. Okay. And um, so so can let's let's do specific numbers. Um so you're right, but what sure. what by by how by how many dollars is it affected? Um, ten percent, ten percent of a hundred million is ten million. Okay. Uh, so, um, so ten million of interest expense. Exactly. Uh, there's also one other thing to note here is um, taxes. Yep. Um, we don't need to pay tax because because uh, interest expense can be seen as an expense on tax accounting. So let's um, let's call it a forty percent tax rate. Let's assume okay. for this question. So we are saving forty uh, percent of ten a million, which is four million. So effectively, it's our net income is going to go down by six million. Yep. Um, um, moving... Yep. Let's keep going. Yeah, moving on to the cash flow uh, statements. Um, cash flow from operating activities is going to go down um, by six million because net income is also going to go down. Yep. Um, but then moving on to uh, cash flow from investing activities, nothing is going to happen there. But cash flow from financing activities. First, um, we get we got the loan of hundred million, so that's going to be a plus. Yep. Uh, and um, but that, that that that's it. So we we take the one hundred million, deduct the six million, so we have uh, a change of ninety four. Third statement: uh, balance sheet. Um, at the end of the year, we still have a liability of 100 million, which comes from getting the loan. And uh, we have 6 million less cash because uh, now we have, um, let me think about that. Um, we have 6 million less cash because we had to pay the interest. However, it's not then because we saved on the taxes. And um, the balancing factor on that is going to be uh, equity on the on the side, so the balance sheet balances in the end. Um, let's let's finish talking through that. So so uh, we we want our balance sheet to balance. First thing you said was hundred million dollar liability for the loan. Totally agree. Um, 
And then you were talking about the change in cash and also the change in equity value. So let me let's uh, let's yeah. double click on those. Um, yeah, I, I mixed it up a little bit. Sorry. Okay, that's okay. At at first, we got like one hundred million cash, in which is an asset, not a yep. current asset. Uh, however, we have to pay six million uh, in interest, so our cash balance goes down. Yeah, in tax and, affected interest. Yeah. I, I, I agree with the number, but yeah, just to be specific on yeah, the nomenclature. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so so what is what is our net change in cash on our balance sheet then? If you net all of that together? Nine uh 94. Yep. Okay. So cash is plus 94 million. Uh we have a new liability for the debt that's plus a hundred million. And what's the balancing factor? Uh, equity, which is minus six. And do you know which line item within equity? I agree. Um, um, uh, it's. I think it's going to be retained earnings. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And and that is not just a balancing factor where we're solving for it to balance, but that is literally the plug coming from the negative six of net of net income on the income statement. Um, great. Um, let me ask you a follow up question, which is what what if the debt that we issued what if it had pick interest? Uh, I'm not aware of what pick interest is. Uh, great. Um, so let's let's define it. Let's go through it together. So so pick P I K stands for payment in kind or paid in kind, and the idea of how a pick loan works is you defer the interest, like the cash interest payments. Um, and so what I mean by that is, let's say it's like a $100 million, 10% pick interest, two-year loan. Um, the way that the cash flows work is the borrower gets the $100 million on day zero. After a year, there is no cash that changes hands. At the, at the end of the second year, which is when the loan matures, um, the borrower has to pay the $100 that they borrowed back, plus now $120 total. So the hundred that they borrowed plus an additional 20. So basically you're deferring when the cash gets paid until maturity. Okay. Um, so that's, that's the idea of, of a, of a, of a pick loan. So um, tell me about, and let's, and let's assume this is, yeah, like a multi-year, you know, bonds. So there's um, no cash is getting exchanged as a result of an interest payment during that year yeah um let's start again with net and with the income statement yeah yeah perfect um, i love it uh it's not going to change at all here in this case um, um so so it's it's interesting because now we're getting into a situation where i agree with you that no cash is changing hands and that's how i defined yeah. it but we might have different accounting um under both, you know, GAP or IFRS, um, no matter where you are, we're gonna account for accrual of the interest. Yeah. So we sorry. I think like is it is it called also called a provision? So sure. Yeah. Yeah. You can yeah. call it pr yeah provision for future interest expense. Yeah. Um. You can you can name that account whatever you want to, but that's a fine name. Okay. So then then um, my guess would be the same would happen as before. Yeah. Um, because on the income can, statement, I agree. On the income statement, uh, um, our net income uh, 
gets reduced by um, the six again. Yeah, because we are saving um, four million in forty percent tax rate. That's tax savings. Exactly. We're we're doing all of the accounting as if there was no difference between the PIC loan and the interest bearing loan on the income statement. Um, it's just you know because we're accounting for it in the same way. But yeah, but there is a difference in cash. So yes, I'm with you so far. Okay, um, moving on to the the cash flow statement. Uh, operating cash flow is also not going to change. It's also going to be, because net income is lower, it's also going to be lower again by minus six. Um, I think what's going to be interesting now is the financing cash flow, because actually we didn't pay interest. So it's only going to be, um, it's going to be plus 100 for the loan we got, so the cash we got, um, plus six, because we kind of have to counterbalance the reduction we, we made uh, in the operating cash flow. So in end, our total cash flow is going to be a plus 100 for the year. It's going to be how much for the year? Uh, plus 100. I actually don't agree with that. Um, I, I, think it, I think it's even better. And I forgot to um, factor in the tax, tax benefit. Yeah, so it's going yeah to be we, we get the tax shield and we haven't even paid the interest. Yeah, so what, what's our net change in cash? Oh, uh, one hundred four. Yeah, um, yeah, we're making money out of nothing. I love it. Um, so, um, so that is, I agree that on our statement of cash flows, the net number is going to be one hundred four. Um, when you sum everything together, I'm not sure I agreed with how you walked through how you attributed it between um, financing and operations. So I'm kind of thinking about where to put this uh, plus four. And I guess I would yeah. also put it into the financing um, cash flow. Um, well, it's it's interesting because that plus four is... So So I agree with you that our um, net income is minus six. But, but our investing... Or sorry, but our, our cash from financing is still plus 100. Like that is like the balance sheet transaction that we did. Um, and so it's really that we have this add back of a non-cash, um, you know, expense. Um, so it really is the case that our, our cash from operations actually is going to be plus four. And we can explain why on the balance sheet, because you, you already mentioned we're like creating that item of like a provision for, um, you know, for interest payments um, or something that, you know, we can... I don't know that you'd want to put it in working capital, but we'd call it as like a line item that gets added back in our cash from operations. Like the bill, like because cash from operations doesn't always equal net income. That's like a place to start. And then you have to account for all the uh all the non-cash discrepancies versus our accounting value. Um by the way, that um Goldman calls that a stretch question. So um good work on that one. So when you when you were working on that, um that that acquisition for Kearney when you were advising on that um, was that a public company that you were advising? Yeah. Did they talk about EPS secretion? You know, from the acquisition or anything like that? Um, are you familiar with that concept? I'm familiar with that concept, but we didn't. Uh, Great. That, but... um, so let's let's talk about it. So what what are the major drivers? Like in a, a you know, if a public company is acquiring a business, like what are the major drivers of EPS secretion? It depends. Uh what what the acquirer uses to to buy the target so is it the right. cash 
Cash, Tet, um, or Stock Exchange? Um, let's yeah. let's talk about each. Um, so let's say it is an all cash acquisition, um, and the acquirer is using only cash from their balance sheet that was not accruing any interest. Um, if the target has a positive um, net income, it's always going to be accretive if only cash Why? is being used to buy it. Because um, the numerator is earnings per share, and you have like two net incomes that you are buying. So you have to... Yep net income of the of the acquirer and then you add towards it but the denominator stays the same so it's yep. always going to be more totally agree okay now what if it is an all cash deal where the acquirer is borrowing money to fund the acquisition um then it depends on the interest rate yep um if if it's uh if the interest rate is cheaper then um then what the additional uh net income is that we get for the amount we pay yep um and it's not the best content so i might not ask this question but i would be prepared for someone to ask you specifically like okay like let's assume you can borrow at 10% interest and you know you're quite like just be be ready for that math and we can talk through that um on a, on a separate posting but i i would be prepared for that follow up question to that um but I agree. And now what if it is an all stock deal, accretive or dilutive? If it's an all stock team, uh, deal, it depends on um, which company has the higher earnings per share. Okay. And, and so let's say um, we as the acquirer um, have the higher earnings per share. Um, then it's, it's going to be accretive because... Um, yeah. Tell me why. Uh, because we get uh, more shares for our own shares, basically, because our, our shares um, are worth more. So, um, so that's interesting. So, so in an all stock deal, um, what it like the dollar value? Like, how does the dollar value of the stock we're giving away compare to the dollar value of the stock that we're receiving? So it all depends again, like on earnings per share. And um, I so if it's an if it's a transaction where we're exchanging something for something, and it's all stock, like there's no like cash settle up, like the dollar value yeah. of what we're trading should be the same, right? Because otherwise exactly. yeah. there wouldn't be a deal. Um, so the dollar value of what we're exchanging is the same, but our earnings per share is higher than the target's earnings per share. Yeah, so we have to give them less shares. So, for example, I have to give the target. We have to give the target three shares, yep. but we get we get four shares. Yeah. Um. So, so I actually think this is this is kind of interesting because another way that you could think about it is valuation ratios. Like you could basically say, like, if our stock has a higher earnings per share than theirs, um, you're like. The, the number of shares you're trading, I think is is right, but I, I tend to think about it in valuation terms, which is to say like, if we're exchanging the same dollar value of stuff and our earnings per share is higher, um, and let's assume the share counts are the same too, because like, um, otherwise then, yeah, could like there could be an accounting trick where like, you know, we might have one share and they might have a million shares. Um, so, so 
really what it comes down to is if we have the same share counts and our earnings per share is higher, then our valuation has to be lower, right? Like our PE ratio has to be lower because you're taking our higher earnings per share and multiplying it by some number to get a dollar value. Um, and on the other side, they're multiplying a lower earnings per share to get to the same dollar value. So what they're multiplying by has to be greater. Yeah. With me. So um, so what does that mean for accretion dilution? Like basically, like we're trading, you know, you know, some shares that are earning whatever, three bucks a share for some other shares that are only earning two bucks per share. So you're trading a share that are earning three bucks per share for shares that are for a different two share bucks. of yeah, that's that's only giving yielding two dollars a share. So we, in order for them to give us one share, we need, we don't we don't have to give them a full share. Only um, no, we like are giving two. them a full share. Um, and this is and it comes down to yeah. valuation. Like think th think about um in the like biotech space, think about like when Pfizer acquires some like, you know, startup like biotech company. Um, and where we're going with this is by the way, is it's dilutive um, in that yeah. circumstance. And that doesn't preclude companies from doing a deal because the difference is growth. Um, anytime any company buys like a, you know, like a startup biotech it is always dilutive. Like always, always, always dilutive because this is a biotech that earns precisely zero dollars in revenue. It's not going to earn any revenue for like years and years. They're like losing money, um, and you're acquiring this money losing business. Um, and so, sort of, does it? And this is the first question which you got right. Like you were like, hey, like even if it's all balance sheet cash, it's only accretive if the target has positive income, you know, or is profitable. Um, and so companies do dilutive deals all the time. Um, they have to justify it in a different way. And really what it comes down to is growth. And so if you have a company that has like a 12 times PE ratio, acquiring a company with a 20 times PE ratio in an all stock deal, that's a dilutive deal. Because for exactly the reason you mentioned, when you traded a lower PE ratio, your like dollars per share, you know, holding share count constant is always going to be higher. So you're giving away more dollars per share today in exchange for whatever quality or property of the target earned them a higher PE multiple. Yeah. Which is likely like you're trading dollars today for growth tomorrow is kind of usually the justification. Yeah, mix it up a little bit. Um, all good. I want I want to pivot a little bit, and you might be familiar with some of this from you know from kind of like thinking about buying from a, a private equity backed business. Um, can you talk a little bit about different ways to make money in an LBO, like if you're doing a, a leverage buyout? Yeah, uh, the LBO basically you make money when you sell the business again. Uh, Yep. Um, and so, so let's say I bought a business and then I sold a business. Like what 
are some ways during my ownership period that could have, you know, what are some things that might have happened that might contribute to producing a profit? Um, yeah, so we buy the business and um, LBO works that we take a loan and we have to pay interest in, on that. And we're going to yep. use um, all of the free cash flow or the free cash flow to pay back the interest. And if the interest is lower than our free cash flow, we can already get some of the of the free cash flow and yep. pay us pay us a dividend, for example. Exactly. Yep. Um, so that's uh, one thing. So yeah, so that you, we could buy something for the same price that we sell it at, um, and still make money, right? Or just on the free cash flow in the intervening period. Yep, absolutely. And the other way uh, is, um, so we have, let's say the case we don't we don't have any any extra uh, free cash flow. So we just pay back the interest and after a period of five or eight years, we decide, okay, yep. it's time to sell it again. We managed to make the business more efficient, uh, maybe increase the ESG rating and maybe also bundle it with some other businesses in the same industry and which allows us to get a higher multiple yep. as well. So it yep. has the leverage um, effect of, of, of having the debt back. Paying the yep. debt and back. you're saying higher multiple, which means higher Price like higher multiple, you know, combined with same or higher, you know, EBITDA equals higher yeah. price. Yep. So I I totally agree. And then there's one other thing I want to talk about, um, which is what happens if let's say you buy a business and you sell it for the same price, um, in the intervening period while you've owned it, your your free cash flow is zero. Um, like your free cash flow after interest um, is zero. I claim that you can still make money doing that. And the question is how? And, and you, you also don't get a higher multiple in the end. Um, uh, correct. Yeah. So okay. you, you bought it and sold it at the same multiple and at the same EBITDA. I think you can still make money from it because I, at the end, you owe something that you only have to pay a partial amount of money for that. Let's say maybe twenty percent, but in the end, you own one hundred percent because you were able to use the free cash flow to pay back the loan. I I I totally agree with what you're saying. Tell me more about what you mean by that. So so you said like what happens if you like only owned 20% when you bought it. Like what is what is that? How how could we buy it? Um if um, we only own 20% like, of it. Uh I always compare it to buying a house. So you have this money money that you need to put put up yourself and the other 80% the bank is going to help you with that. Yeah. And... Um so who owns the other 80%? Uh we also own it. Okay, so then where does the other 80% of the money come from? Um, um, the other 80% comes from that because the company takes a loan on each future. Yeah, so, 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 so everything you've said, I 100% agree with. But I'm only asking you this question because you brought it up in the last one is it's the difference between equity value and enterprise value. Um, yeah. Right, because we are buying an enterprise at the same level that we're selling it for, but we're writing an equity check that isn't the full value of the thing. Um, and so we could buy it and sell it at the same price, which means the enterprise value at entry and exit is the same. But because we've been paying down interest during our ownership period, 
when we settle up at the end and we're like, okay, like we have this enterprise value consideration, like who gets the rest of it? The lenders will get less from that than they gave you at entry because you've been paying them money in the meantime. Um, So the lenders are still getting their money back with interest, but because you've been paying that in the meantime, you get a bigger slice of the pie at the end. Um, so it's it's not affecting your you're still a 100% equity owner. Um, but the difference between the equity value and the enterprise value has shrunk yeah. over time. Um, because yeah, because our our equity value plus our net debt is is what's summing to our enterprise value. Um, great, Joel. Thank you so much for for hopping on and doing this. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. Great. Um, how did how did that feel to you? A bit stressful, to be honest. But yeah. you made you made it very you made it very welcoming. So those those were tricky questions, and I would say overall, like this was a really strong interview. If I were interviewing for real, I would advance you to the next stage. Um, and I'll tell you, like you demonstrated a lot of technical proficiency that I think stood out. And one thing that I think some interviewers feel a little bit differently about this, like everybody like has different attitudes of like what works well. But for me, the best interviews blend knowledge of certain questions with an ability to figure out things that you didn't hear, you know, had never encountered before on the fly. Because that tells me that you're not just memorizing something and I don't know how well you've actually internalized it. And so what I actually felt was the best part of this interview were situations where you didn't quite have the vocabulary to describe it, or it was a new term and you literally needed me to define it for you. But once I did that, you like qualitatively understood exactly what we were talking about. Like with the pick interest, um, like you're like, okay, like, in kind, but, you know, so we need to create, you know, a balance sheet item to track it. Um, like that was exactly the perfect intuition on that question. Um, and then at the end, um, on that LBO question, I I still would encourage you to spend a little bit more time thinking about defining equity value versus enterprise value. But conceptually, you have it. It's just like you need to practice like talking through some of those questions, I think a little bit. Um, but overall, I thought this went really well. You showed kind of a very strong understanding of three statements. Like we walked through one of those questions. Um, we spent some time talking through your resume. Um, if I had to pick the weakest part of the interview process, it is actually like in it's the thing that you have the most control over, which is the walk me through your resume question. Um, and this is advice I give to a lot of people with is that in 99% of interviews, the first, you know, somebody will sit down and they have not looked at your resume before stepping into the room with you or stepping on a Zoom with you. They're like pulling up your resume either 30 seconds before hopping on with you or like they're like listening to it and they're like trying to shift gears and they're like, oh, I don't know, like walk me through your resume. Like that basically is like the first question you get asked all the time. And I would encourage you to not feel like you need to 
tell your life story as your response to walk me through your resume. Instead, I sort of view the walk me through your resume question as if you have an opening statement. And your opening statement doesn't have to be written on your resume, but all of the supporting evidence for your opening statement is on your resume. So if I come into an interview saying, why should I hire you? Your answer is not, well, you know, I started my life and kind of doing a lot of different things. Your answer is like, I have a passion for this stuff. Like, I I didn't really start thinking about this until a couple of years ago. But as soon as I did, I dove right in like, um, and supporting evidence, like I graduated early, I earned very high grades. I did the study abroad program in California. Um, and I've done all these internships. Um, so it's like when, so like your, op- I view your opening statement as closer to I've excelled at whatever thing I've been passionate about. I'm passionate about this. And I have, you know, the, the quantitative skills or like internship experience to be able to like hit the ground running. Yeah. And I think if you start by framing it that way and they're like, Oh, fascinating. Tell me about supporting evidence for this. Then you can say, well, we can go to this bullet point or we can go to this bullet point. Um, I love that you sprinkle in kind of like some of the different types of things you've been working in. And I can say I've never interviewed anyone for an investment banking position who's worked with Dua Lipa. Um, you, you're one of one in, in that regard. And I think that is like kind of a fun flavor to include, but it's not your opening statement. That's like the topic sentence of paragraph three, you know what I mean? Um, and so I would encourage you to really practice, like put your, like turn your resume over. So it's like blank side up and imagine someone asked you like, why should I hire you? And that's your opening statement. And then you use the resume as supporting evidence. And one thing I've found, by the way, is that when people do that exercise, you might realize that there's some thing you're thinking about that isn't on your resume. Like you might, like in preparing your opening statement, be thinking about a particular course that you took that was foundational to your experience or you know, some, some particularly important thing. And that might prompt you to, um, you know, tweak your resume a little bit. Um, I don't think that's necessarily needed in this case, though. I will say, um, in your case, I know you have this incoming, you know, associate consultant experience that's upcoming. And I would recommend once you add bullets for that, like the way you'll make space on your resume is I might in under your education, I might consider taking your university of music and performing arts experience and moving that to the like skills and interests, you know, or like other, like, but it works for now. Cause it's like, you know, it was a big part of your life. I just think that cause it was a while ago, but overall I thought this was a really strong interview. I can tell why like things were going well. So I'm curious, like, do you feel like you're more prepared for an interview now than you were then? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, okay and i've done a couple of interviews now and i think like you actually learn a lot during the interviews one of the things you mentioned when you reached out to me is that you had uh, an interview with a boutique investment bank and i just wanted to hear a little bit kind of like how that went um if there's any particular things that 
you want to improve on or any any specific things that you're really focused on right now? Yeah, for sure. So the story is um, right after I graduated, a couple of months back, I sent out a couple of cold emails to some recruiters from elite investment banks and also um, the budget brackets. And uh, some of them sent me back a nice email said like, uh, hey, thanks for reaching out, but um, we don't hire from emails. Please check our corporate website. There you can find all the positions and just like go through the normal process. Um, however, however, um, one of the banks got back to me two months later uh, via phone call and said like, hey, we want to invite you to an interview. And this was Evercore. And, um, but the issue was the interview day was uh, three days after the phone call. And I was like, okay, wow, that's a great opportunity. I would love to do that. And I tried to study as much, cram in as much like finance knowledge and um, like all these 400 investment banking questions. But um, the, entering, the, the interview day was super interesting. However, I think like some of the questions, I like kind of mix equity value and enterprise value two times. Yep. And I think this is like a complete no-go. And yeah. I think just like the, the repetitions were missing. I had a couple of other interviews after that with uh, one of the big fours, where I also got an offer, which I didn't take it, but, and also a small M&A boutique. So I think I'm improving. However, it was a good experience like that yes. you need to prepare ahead of time. I it's it's so funny how it always works like that. Like you know, all of these cold emails and cold outreach is such a low probability of success, but when it is a success, it's like, yeah, let's talk tomorrow. Um yeah. after like nobody talked to you for yeah, like months. Um and so it definitely, you know, as as I I had an experience like that, like my the last like super day that I attended, it was like we're going to fly you tomorrow. I was like, are you, like, are you kidding me? Um, so um, and anyway, I think, I think that's like a very common experience for folks and that's like very helpful grounding. So, and then one last thing that you mentioned is interesting is that interview kind of got, you know, came about because you cold emailed some recruiters. Um how did how did you find those contacts or like what did, what did you do to like do that as a process? And then for the internships that you have gotten, were those also did those start with cold outreach or were there, was there any other connection there? Like do you do you notice any similarities or differences between successful um you know outreach and unsuccessful outreach in terms of how you source the opportunities? Uh, so the way I, the way I went about is I went on LinkedIn and mm -hmm. I went to the people section and then you can yep. like filter current company and then you basically add the keyword recruiter HR. Yep. And as for some of the companies you can find it and then you can easily guess uh, the email, the first yep. name dot second name and then yep. whatever like Rocket Reach or some other software might help you with that as well. Um and. Then I just sent them a short, super short email and attached my my resume and my grades and stuff. And they said, like, just like, yeah, thanks so much for your time. I know you get like yep. 1,000 of these emails probably every day, but but still just like a short summary. Yeah. Um, and but most of the time, and I'm, I'm especially here in the German speaking area in the duck duck region, uh, then they mostly send you back to the recruiting link, the online link where you can find the yep. internship. Um, posting that that by the way in my experience the 
oh, just apply on our website. I I view that as kind of like the F off of responses where it's like, I don't want to deal with you. Like there's a process because it has definitely been my experience that when you submit your resume into the online portal and you do nothing else, you have a 0.0000001% chance of that leading to a job. Like it just like goes into the ether. And so that personal connection I've found is always a differentiator and always, you know, an important contributor. And so what I might recommend doing, at least like my my experience has been that the recruiters and like human capital folks are day-to-day running these internship processes, but they aren't the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers are the bankers or the people who are doing the job. And so if basically if you successfully outreach to, you know, a human capital professional and they're like, great, like, you know, we're putting you in the process, you know, or, or they say, oh, just apply online. I think your odds of getting that job or advancing far are a lot worse than if you cold outreach to an investment banking professional, like an associate or a VP or an analyst, and you go through those channels and then they forward your resume to the, you know, recruiter. Um, Because then the recruiter is not just like, oh, I got this cold email and I don't know how people are going to respond to this. Because that's what they're thinking. Like they're thinking, how do I look good by putting good candidates in front of our team? Like that's like how a recruiter like looks good is like, by sending a high volume of super high quality candidates through the funnel. Um, And it's a lot easier for them if a banker says, hey, like put this person in the funnel because you've de-risked the like, you know, someone is like, how the heck did, you know, did Joel like get in there? They'd be like, oh, well, like this analyst like said he was good and like vouched for him. Um, and so I feel like that kind of like de-risks the recruiter's role and makes their funnel a little bit wider. Um, and I think you will also run into friendlier faces during the interview process because your interviews, your like real interviews are going to be with those bankers too. Um, and so they might help you prepare or might, you know, tell somebody like, Hey, like I talked to this guy, like he's smart. Um, so that is probably like the one tweak to your outreach process that I'd recommend as well. Makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Um, well, Joel, again, thank you so much for taking the time on Sunday and best of luck. Keep me updated on on how it's going. And and you know, who knows, in a couple months, maybe we'll uh we'll have you back on as a success story to talk about, you know, all the things that went right um since we last spoke. Yeah, thank you so much. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember to check out our website, breakingintofinancepodcast.com, where you can submit questions, join our Substack to stay up to date on new content releases, and much, much more. We'll see you next time.